We have a Devo today. The person who's going to be giving this Devo today is such a good friend of mine. His name is Darren Vitatel, and he's one of the guys at this study that is just a, he's a solid Christian. He's, uh, he's old in his walk and, and really has a, has a heart to minister and, and be there and pray for and and be whatever it is that you need. So I encourage you, not only as he comes up and gives, gives this Devo, would you just have open ears, but come up to him. You know, he, he's somebody who can definitely pour into your life. He pours into mine daily, daily. Not only is he a good friend of mine, but he's the guy at this study. His job here at this study, among many other things, is he's my uh, heresy check. <laughs> it's never, never in my teaching experiences it ever had to be used, but... If I should ever say something heretical, Darren's job is to stand up, interrupt me, and I'll have to duck when he throws a rock, but, uh, and to just call it out. Um, he's somebody who's really special in my life. I'm building him up all this to say, have open ears to hear what God would say through him. Amen? So join me with me. Welcome up, Darren. All right, guys. Most of the time I'm back there behind a soundboard, so this is my first time actually speaking on a mic in a couple of years. Last time was uh, actually here for Proposition 8 when we were doing a uh, fast and prayer time. So you get notes as I'm reading them, so thanks, guys. Uh, It's going to be in Proverbs 13.20 is where we're pulling this from. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. In truth, we become like those we keep company with, especially those we allow closest to us. Consider the people that you hang out and spend most of your time with. What are they like? What's the strength of their characters? What are their weaknesses? What stirs their hearts? As we spend many hours with our friends and family, we start picking up on their mannerisms, on their speech patterns, even on their ideals. We'll start thinking the way they do. This can affect our temperaments, which Solomon warns of things such as the temper itself. In Proverbs 22, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. We want to be wise with who we walk with in this life. The times we find ourselves in are truly a time of testing, from the economic situation to the wars that are going on around the world for us, to an ideological shift in, American pub- in the American public. Family, each of us has a calling from Father to be about his business, to be seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. It's a wise decision to surround yourselves with those who want to seek the Lord, those you can count on, those whom you can lock shields with in faith, in moments of testing, and in moments of doubt. Times came for Daniel and his friends when they were sent to uh, Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. And in this dream, he wanted it interpreted, but he wasn't going to tell anybody about it. Instead, he put all the wise men and his counselors on the chopping block, insisting that they tell him the dream. Daniel went to his three friends. They locked shields together, got on their face before Father, and Father gave the answer to Daniel. Again, Daniel's friends were tested, Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazariah. They were going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. In fact, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. They locked shields together. They stood ready to give their lives for the Lord instead of bowing down to an idol. Throughout our lives, we have many companions, both friends and families of all ages. They help us in our perspective in life. Those older... 
They'll hedge us in with wisdom. Those younger, they keep our perspectives stoked with fresh fire. I encourage you to each one of you, take a look at your friends, your family, that are close to you. Are they building you up in your walk with the Father, or are they, pouring, or are they tearing you down? And those that, are, that were once walking closely with Jesus, is their love fading away? Are they being drawn away from their first love? Get alone with Father. Bring your families to him in prayer. It might be time to do some weeding and tending of those relationships. Listen to the Spirit as you pray for wisdom and guidance. Be ready. But remember, Jesus loves each of those close to us more than we do. It may be time to cut off those relationships for a season, and it might be time to kindle them once again. I know of a man who, many years ago, his best friend was falling into sin, and so he cut off that relationship for a time. But he had his family seek the Lord on his behalf. And then Father put it on his heart one day about 18 years ago to go and have a conversation with him. And during that conversation, he spoke to him and said, you know, Father wants to use you in a mighty way. Thankful, because I was the one that received that message. I was the one that was cut off. And so it's a good thing once in a while to seek the Lord on what he would have you to do. So family, friends, be willing to sacrifice. Be willing to seek Father in obedience and do as he directs you. It may hurt for a short time, but remember, he sees all. So let's pray. Father, we just come to you tonight with our friends, our families. Father, I pray for this crowd here that you would just touch upon everybody. Lord, there are people that are close to them right now that need to hear from you, and there are people that they need to back off from, Lord, so then you can get into their lives. Give everybody here, fill us with wisdom, Father, as to how to follow you in that. And so, Father, we just thank you, Lord. Just pray that you would bless accordingly. Bless Tyler as he brings the word tonight. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Got to tip it back up. <laughs> Love you, Darren. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to continue, like I said, through the Bible. And so I encourage you to take out your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 37. If you remember last week, I cheated a little bit, and instead of being in Genesis 30, I went back to 29. But uh, we're going back on track, so we're in Genesis 37. Not only for the sake of time, but for the sake of my voice, I'm going to forgo my usual recap of what happened over the last week. Um, So if you didn't read, you're going to miss out on all the things that that God did between chapters 30 and chapter 37. So if you didn't read, I encourage you, go back, catch up. Because uh, this is God's word, and every single bit of it, every single bit, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Every single word is breathed out by God, and is useful for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Even the genealogies, I promise. And uh, when, whenever you do find that uh, you come across a passage of Scripture that is a little bit dry, hey, even that, there is something that God wants to say to you in that. And so when you come to dry parts of Scripture, you just have to moisten them with a little sweat. Work a little bit harder to understand what's going on in that passage, and I promise you'll be blessed. But 
Today, as we look at Genesis 37, we're going to be looking at one of, or at least part of, one of the greatest narratives in the entire Bible. It's so great uh, that not only was there uh, a series of books uh, written after it, which I read when I was younger, great books, um, but there's even a, a musical written after it, uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. <laughs> We're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. And uh, Joseph was, uh, the whole story of Joseph, like I said, it's one of the greatest narratives in the whole of Scripture. There, it's so rich, but at the same time, it's so easy to read. It's so easy to be ministered to by it. It's not, like I said, quite so dry as necessarily the genealogies, but, oh man, it's a rich blessing. But we're going to go ahead and jump right in to Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 1. Actually, before we do, let's pray. Father, this is your study and this is your word. God, we're here to just receive from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd pour out your spirit on me, that you'd strip away everything that I am of myself and everything that I have to say. God, that only your word would go out from this microphone. Father, I pray that we would be not only convicted, but encouraged by the story of your servant, Joseph. And Father, that we grow from it. Bless this time, please, in your precious son's name. Amen. Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan family is the promised land. Jeremy got it. Everybody else, maybe you're new. When I, when I motion my hands like this, that means I want to hear from you. I want to hear back. The land of Canaan is the promised land. That's right, the promised land. And if you read earlier, or read throughout the week, you would know that Jacob, who is the son of... Anyone? Isaac, thank you. <laughs> Man, that was, that was kind of pathetic. That's okay. The arms were out, but nothing was happening. Jacob is the son of Isaac, okay? Jacob's name gets changed, right? It gets changed to be Israel. God changes Jacob's name to be Israel, and out of Jacob, the entire nation of Israel is birthed. Jacob is the third and final patriarch that we're going to read about in the story of Genesis, or pardon me, in the book of Genesis. So Jacob, or Israel, is living And sojourning, which means just basically being nomads. They have no real place of their own. They're living in tents. Sojourning in the promised land. Israel is is finally, they're there. They're living in the promised land in God's perfect promise for their life. In the land of Canaan. Verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Oh no. I know what you're all thinking. Bunch of hard names. Don't worry, that doesn't happen. We'll keep reading. (laughs) Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, of them, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that the that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. We'll pause right there. There's a lot to unpack 
in these short four verses. So we're introduced to Joseph. Joseph is Jacob's son. More than being Jacob's son, he's the son of Jacob and Rebekah. You remember we studied last week, we looked at Jacob and Rebekah and Leah, right? Jacob loved, I said Rebekah three times, it's Rachel, I'm sorry. Rebekah was his mom. Awkward. Anyway. Jacob, I'm going to do that a lot. I just want to throw it out there. There's so much alliteration with these people that I mix up their names all the time. I'm going to say Jacob when I mean Joseph and Joseph when I mean Jacob and Rachel and Rebecca. It's the R's and the J's. I mix them up all the time. So if I do that, love covers a multitude of sins. Just forgive me and move on. Okay. Jacob loved Rachel, right? And so last week we took a look at Genesis 29, and how Jacob fell madly in love with Rachel. You remember it was the greatest chick flick in the entire Bible. Because Jacob goes to Rachel's dad Laban and says, I'll serve you for seven years for your daughter, for Rachel. And, uh, and so he does. He becomes Laban's slave for seven years. And it says in Genesis 29, they seemed but a few days to, to him because of how much he loved her. Oh, so sweet. Something out of the notebook, I know. So when it came time, his seven years were served, Jacob went to Laban and said, all right, give me my wife. It's been seven years. I've worked for you. I'm done. It's time. And Jacob said, all right, fine. And he has this huge wedding ceremony. And the wedding happens The wedding night happens, and when Jacob wakes up, behold, it was Leah. It was Leah, Rachel's slightly less attractive sister. But more importantly than that, it wasn't so much that she was less attractive. It's just that Jacob wasn't in love with her. Jacob was not in love with her. He got fooled by Laban into marrying his love's sister. And so Jacob goes to Laban and And argues with him, and Laban says, okay, well, serve Rachel, or serve me for seven more years for Rachel, and I'll give you to her. So Jacob does, in total, he serves 14 years to get Rachel as his wife. I'm sorry, I'm so confused. I said Rachel, right? I'm sorry. It's so confusing, the Rebecca-Rachel thing. I don't know if you get confused, but I'm so simple. I, I get confused by that stuff. Anyway. So now Jacob has two wives, Rachel and Rebecca, right? Leah. (laughs) Father, please help me. (laughs) Please. Rachel and Leah. I need to start like really focusing on these names before I say them. If I start talking like Forrest Gump, you'll know why. Rachel and Leah. Along with Rachel and Leah, Laban gave his two servants to each of them respectively to be their maidens. They were Zilpah and Bilhah. Okay? Zilpah and Bilhah. Then you remember we studied in, uh, at the end of chapter 29, how God made Rachel barren, but he gave Leah children, right? And she kept saying, well, God has given me a son, so now my husband will love me. 
Well, now he must love me because I've given him two sons. Well, I've given him three sons now, and so my husband must be attached to me. After all, I've given him three sons. And finally, she's given one more son, Judah, and she says, this time I'll praise the Lord, right? After that, what ended up happening is now Bilhah and Zilpah end up marrying Jacob, And they start popping out kids as well. Finally, 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 God opens Rachel's womb and gives her a son, Jacob, Joseph. Father, Joseph. That was almost a dramatic moment. Joseph. Now, because Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And even because himself, his mom loved him more than, than, he loved, than she loved Esau, and, and his dad loved Esau more than he loved him. And there's this terrible family history of favoritism, and it continues on down to Joseph. Jacob loves Joseph more than he loves any of the other brothers. In fact, it says in the, in the passage of Scripture here that, that he made for, for Joseph a coat of many colors. Now, this is a little bit of an arbitrary phrase. It may have actually been made of a ton of different colors, but what the phrase really means is that it was a long-sleeved jacket, basically, which doesn't seem that important to us. But basically what it was saying is, is that everyone else, all my other sons, I'm going to give them short sleeve shirts because they're going to need short sleeve shirts because they're going to be out working, right? But Joseph, I'm giving him a long sleeve shirt. He's not going to be the working class. He's my favorite son. It's sort of like the difference between blue collar and white collar. We understand those phrases, right? Blue collar are hard grunt workers. White collar are management that sort of loaded, lorded over the blue-collar people. That's, in effect, what's happening here. Jacob's looking at Joseph, and he says, you, son, you're a white-collar kind of guy. Everyone else, whatever. You're just blue-collar people. Go take care of the sheep. This caused all the other brothers to really not care too much about Joseph. Maybe you know the type, either in your family Uh, or in maybe your extended family, you've observed it, or in maybe your friend's family, you've observed it. When the parents single out one kid and love that kid more than the others, or favor that kid more than the others, the other brothers and sisters don't tend to really like the favorite child, do they? No, doesn't happen. It's not so much that they would hate him just because dad loved him more than the rest of them, but they just didn't really care for him too much. He was dad's favorite. He could do no wrong in dad's eyes. And the rest of us, we're just second-class citizens to Joseph. They didn't care too much for him. They didn't care too much. But to compound that sin of Jacob, of having favoritism of Joseph over the rest of the brothers, and causing him to, to be a little bit rejected by them, what made that worse is Joseph's sin. Now, many of you in hearing stories about Joseph, you may have heard things like Joseph was completely sinless, or he was just a perfect child, um, 
That's not true. That's not the case. That's not the case. The reason why people do that, this is a little bit of an aside, uh, but the reason why people try and say things like that, that Joseph was perfect, is because Joseph is a type of Christ. We'll see that later on. And so they try and say that Joseph was perfect. Mm-mm, not the case. In fact, we see that in verse 2, that Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, we might be looking at this thinking, well, he just, you know, he, he told dad what was going on. But if, if we take a look at the Greek, I'm sorry, not the Greek, the Hebrew. It's Tuesday. If we take a look at the Hebrew, what's going on here? is that this is a false report. A false report of them to their father. So, not only is Joseph the favorite son, but he's a tattletale. He's a tattletale on top of it. And so we have dad's sin of having favoritism of Joseph above the other brothers, and we have Joseph's sin of being a little bit of a tattletale. He was a brat. These two things come together and they cause Joseph's brothers to hate him. They completely hated him. In fact, it says at the end of verse 4 that they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't speak peacefully to him. Again, looking back at the Hebrew, probably a better way to translate this is that they could not speak peacefully in response to him. In response to him. So here's sort of the picture if you're not catching it. Joseph comes up. Hey guys, what's going on? How are you doing? Yeah, dad just sent me over. Say what's up. Have you seen my coat lately? It's, oh, I I just got cleaned and it's looking really shiny. Every time he would come up to them, and even when he was trying to be friendly to him, they would shun him. They couldn't even speak peacefully in response to him. They couldn't even hold small talk with Joseph. They just hated him so much that every time he talked to them, get away from me, you little brat, stinging kid, dad's favorite. Who does he think he is coming around here? Get out of here. We hate you. Go. Go do something with your coat. I I don't know. They, They hated him, though, is the point. And they couldn't speak peacefully in return to him. Why? Again, Dad's sin, his sin, compounded. It made them hate Joseph. This begs the question, though, where was God in all this? Where where was God? Here's poor Joseph. He's trying to be nice to his brothers, at least some of the time, and they completely hate him because of sin. Because of a little bit, yeah, his sin, but mostly his father's sin. Poor Joseph, where was God? Why wasn't he taking care of this? Where was God? Throwing fuel on the fire. What? Let's keep reading. You'll understand what I mean. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
we'll just go ahead and keep reading. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Where was God in this whole thing? Throwing fuel on the fire. Making their br- Joseph's brother's hatred for him even worse. What? Tyler, that doesn't make any sense. Why would God do something like that? Well, we'll see why in a little bit. But understand what's happening here. We have, remember, Joseph's dad... Favoritism makes the brothers not like Joseph so much. Then he's a tattletale. He's 17 years old and still a little bit of a brat, sort of spreading lies about him to dad. So now they really can't stand him. But then on top of that, God comes in and seals the deal, makes sure they completely hate him by giving him two dreams that basically say, hey, everybody, I'm going to rule over you one day. Isn't that fantastic? I'm the youngest brother, and I'm going to rule over you. Well, now they completely hated him. Completely hated him. Wanted nothing to do with Joseph. Why would God do something like that? We ask the same questions in our lives. Why would God do this? Or why would God allow that? How could God allow all this evil to happen in the world? How could he allow a murderer to kill 32 women? How could God allow child molesters to continue living? How could God let that person wrong me in this way? How could God let me lose my job? How could God let my business go under? How could God let all these things happen? Where is God in all this? We so often ask ourselves, and the world asks us, where was God? Where was God when Hurricane Katrina happened? Where was God when 9-11 happened? Where was God in all this? Making it happen. Orchestrating it all to happen. What? You don't have to believe me right now. We'll read on. We're going to see it in Scripture. But I want you to bear this in mind. Not only is God the God of the miraculous, not only does he work miracles, part the Red Sea, turn water into wine, cause plagues to fall on entire nations. Not not only is he the God of the miraculous, but he's the God of the ordinary. God takes things and causes them to happen, shapes things, shapes people, works things out, orchestrates these things to happen all for a purpose. Where was God in all this? Where was God in this whole account of poor Joseph being just hated by his brothers? He was making sure that they completely hated him. Hmm. Let's find out why. Verse 12 now his brothers went to pasture their flocks, uh, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. 
And Israel said to Joseph, Are your brothers not pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to to him, Here I am. So he said, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to the valley of Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. We'll pause right there real quick, just for a brief explanation of some things. Hebron is 55 miles or so from Shechem. 55 miles north of Shechem. Beyond that, another 17 miles is Dothan. Another 17 miles is Dothan. So here's Jacob, over 70 miles away from dad and from help. He's gone. His dad has sent him away to go and to see how his brothers are doing. They're pasturing the sheep long ways away. Hey, go see how your brothers are doing. They've been a while. I just want to make sure everything's okay with them and with the sheep. If you're reading throughout the week, you'll understand when I say Levi and Simeon especially had gotten into trouble before in Shechem. In fact, they had slaughtered a ton of people. I encourage you, if you haven't, go back and read about it. Uh, but this is Shechem. It's not exactly the, the friendliest of towns. The, this is the Compton of the area. And here are the brothers there in sort of a dangerous place. And so Joseph goes up to find him. And he comes into the land of Shechem looking for his brothers. And, uh, and he rolls up. And he's walking around in his shiny coat. And this guy in the rough neck of the woods looks at him like, Man, what are you looking for? You must be lost. Because you are not from around here, my friend. You well-dressed Hebrew. Joseph says, well, I'm looking for my brothers. Have you seen them? Where are they pasturing the flock? He says, oh, they went up to Dothan. So they went up, in our terms, they went to Hollywood. They're up at Hollywood. They took, they took the flocks up there. So Joseph is like, okay, well, what the heck are they doing in Dothan? So he goes up after and he chases him down. He follows his brothers to Dothan. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said one to another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what has become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, now Reuben is the oldest here. Okay, so he's the oldest brother there. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. We'll pause right there. That was a little bit rough of a toss. I just threw my Bible. I'm sorry. So what's going on here is Joseph comes up over the hill, and he's just looking for his brothers. He's just going what dad sent him to do. What dad sent him to do. And Joseph's brothers see him from afar, and they start conspiring to kill him. That worthless, no-good brat is coming over here, and he's just going to come and cause a bunch of trouble 
and we hate him anyway, but he's just going to go back and tell dad a whole bunch of untrue, bad stuff about us and make up a bunch of stories about why we were in Dothan. Let's just kill the kid. Yeah, yeah, let's kill him. One of the other brothers chimes in. Yeah, we could beat him up and throw him into a pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when we get back, we can tell dad that an animal has eaten him. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Great idea, Levi. They start conspiring against each other. Reuben, the oldest, chimes in. He says, whoa, hold on. He comes into the, into the picture after everybody's been talking about how they're going to kill Joseph. And he's like, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Uh, maybe we should just throw him into a pit and let him stay there. Let's not let his blood be on our hands. Shed no blood, Reuben says. Or some translations put it, and it's a better way to translate it, you shed no blood. Sort of removing himself from the whole thing. Like, I I don't want any part of this, but you better not shed his blood. Because you remember what happened to our great, 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 grandfather, Cain, right? He shed his father's, or he shed his brother's blood, and it called out to God from heaven, don't shed any blood, just throw him into the pit. All this in Reuben's mind was a way that he could go and save his brother Joseph and bring him back to his dad. He couldn't bear, understand, to come back to dear old dad and tell him that his favorite son had been killed. He couldn't bear to do that. Why? Because as being the oldest, it would completely be blamed on him, and he already was in a little bit of trouble with the whole Bilhah deal. Again, if you read before, you'll know what I'm talking about. If not, got to find out what happened. Go back and read. Reuben got into some trouble with Bilhah. And so as a result, he wasn't exactly on dad's good side. So not only could he not bear for his own reasons to tell dad that Joseph was dead, but as we're going to see later, he genuinely loved Joseph. He genuinely cared about him. Yeah, sure, he was bummed because, you know, Joseph constantly said bad things about him and his brothers. But Reuben was the oldest, understand? Reuben was the oldest, and he really didn't see it as a problem, I don't think. He's the oldest one there, Joseph's the youngest, and it's like, well, he's going to grow out of it. He's just a kid sort of thing. Reuben, understand, is, is quite a bit older than Joseph and, and is definitely wiser than the rest of his brothers. So he devises this plan. Okay, I'll just have them throw him in a pit and then I'll come save him later and take him back to dad. They'll be bummed, but whatever. It's better than killing him. So the brothers go along with it. Yeah, you're probably right. We don't want God ticked at us because... That did happen to Cain, you know, the whole Cain and Abel thing. So we'll just throw him in a pit, and that way we won't technically be shedding his blood. We'll just throw him into a deep well that he can't climb out of, and he'll starve to death. And that's not on our hands anymore. We didn't kill him. So that was the plan. Let's continue reading to see what happened. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and 
threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. I just want to pause right there. I know we didn't get far. How ruthless, how cold these brothers are about it. Their brother's coming. He has no idea that anything's wrong. Yeah, Joseph was definitely sinful, and in his youth, he was a little bit arrogant and liked to think himself better than he was. But by and large, that was simply because his parents did. His parents thought he was the, the greatest thing since sliced bread, and sliced bread hadn't even been invented yet. And so here comes Joseph, not a care in the world, just going to do dad's will. He comes over the hill, he comes near him, and instantly they grab him. And they rip his coat off and likely the rest of his clothes and throw him naked into a well that has no water in it. And so there's poor Joseph, lying, bruised and bloodied, naked and likely with a broken bone at least, in the bottom of this well, completely helpless. And what do his brothers do? His own flesh and blood. What do they do? They have lunch. They have lunch. This was likely the food, the delicacies that Joseph was bringing from their father to them. And oh, look at all this food he's got. Imagine the, uh, imagine the amount of hate that must have taken for them to do something like that to their own brother. Very sad. But we'll keep reading. Story's not over yet. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our, own, our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Judah. Okay, we'll pause right there. Judah, this is important. Judah is the tribe of Israel that was the royal line. And it was out of the tribe of Judah that every king of Israel came. This is the first time, and from here on out, Judah really takes a leadership role among the brothers and ultimately among the tribes of Israel. It's Judah that the kings come out of. And more importantly, it's Judah that Messiah comes out of. The Savior, Jesus Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. Judah says, hey guys, what profit is it for us to kill our own brother? Let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. And uh, that way his blood won't be on our hands at all. We don't know what his motives were in doing this. Whether it was to get a few extra shekels in his pocket, or, liter- or truly out of care and concern for his brother. But in either case, his brothers listened to him. And he was sold into slavery, dragged naked out of the pit, thrown 
into this caravan of Ishmaelites, like, likely to be strapped with, uh, with loads to bear. I mean, after all, he is a slave now. He just carries some of the weight. And they sell their brother into slavery. Imagine. Imagine taking your brother, or if you don't have a brother, taking your best friend, the closest person you have to a brother, and selling that person into slavery. What must that have taken? What must that have taken in their hearts to do something like that? But again, it's better than killing him, I guess. So they sell Joseph into slavery. Verse 28, the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? We'll pause right there. I first want to point out Reuben's remorse. It takes quite a bit of grief to tear one's clothes, but he does. He tears his clothes in front of his brother and he goes to his brothers and he says, what am I supposed to do? Joseph's not there anymore. I was trying to appease you and throw him in a pit. I was going to pull him out and save him, but he's gone now. What am I supposed to do? This isn't okay. Do you understand what this is going to do to dad? But nevertheless, Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Sound familiar? It should. Joseph was sent by his father to go see how the other sons were doing. They weren't where they were supposed to be, you understand. They had disobeyed their dad. They'd gone up to Dothan. They'd done things their own way. And so Joseph went after him. And as he was coming up, bringing gifts for them, coming in peace, they looked at him and they conspired against him about how they'd kill him. They ended up taking Joseph a prince in a sense of Israel and selling him to be a slave. He'd done nothing. He'd done nothing. This is the first time we see Joseph being a type of Christ. His father sent him into the world to us, to bring peace in a sense. And what was the first thing that his Israelite brothers, what was the first thing they thought of when they saw him? Coming up over the hill into Jerusalem? How are we going to kill him? Jesus' life was also sold for silver. Interesting. Jesus later on, as we know, was crucified and rose three days later, victorious over even death and sin 
reconciling us to God, saving us from our sins, saving us from death, and giving us life, giving us relationship with God. As we read on through the chapters, we will see the same thing happen with Joseph. I know I just spoiled the whole story, but hopefully you know it anyway. But I continue to read on with that in mind, understanding that Joseph, yeah, he's not a perfect uh, image of Jesus. There's no such thing as a perfect metaphor. They always break down at some point. But nevertheless, Joseph is a type or an image or a representation of Christ. You remember, family, as we're studying the Old Testament, the Old Testament serves to point to who? Jesus. That's right. The Old Testament serves to point to Jesus. Specifically, Genesis You remember the theme or the purpose of Genesis is to do two things. It's to reveal to us God's nature through his creation, and secondly, God's nature through his chosen people. God revealing his nature and even his plan to us through his chosen people. One of those being Joseph. One of the things we see about Joseph is as he's thrown into this pit, stripped naked, completely abused by his brothers, then pulled out and sold into slavery. He was then taken to Egypt, we read, and sold on the blocks there. Again, understanding the tradition of the time, likely completely stripped naked and, and sold. I mean, what a degrading thing to happen to you. But through all this, we never hear Joseph open his mouth. Joseph never says, poor me. Joseph never says, why me? Joseph never says, help me. Joseph never says, God, what about me? Joseph never cries out. Just as we see Christ on his way to crucifixion. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth, is what we read in Isaiah. And though Jesus did offer seven statements from the cross, when he was before his accusers, he never tried to defend himself. He never cried out for it to stop. He never acted victimized, though he'd done nothing wrong. And he never had self-pity. And I love that in the story of Joseph, we don't see that either. Joseph was neither a, a victim I mean, he was a victim, but he didn't act like a victim. He didn't fall prey to, uh, you know, victimization of just being and and acting the victim. And he he didn't have self-pity. He didn't go around moping, why me, poor me, all this is terrible. We don't see that happening ever in the entire narrative of Joseph. It doesn't happen once. We're going to see why in just a little bit. But let's continue on reading. I know I keep like teasing you with, we're going to see why, we're going to see why, but I promise it's coming. 
Verse 31, Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. We'll pause. We're almost done, but we'll pause. Just to point out, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but all of this seems to pivot around this robe. All of this seems to pivot around this robe. This robe comes up time and time again in this narrative. First, we see it given to Joseph in love. Then we see it ripped off Joseph in hate. And now we see the robe delivered back to Jacob in deception. They take the robe, kill a goat, dip the the robe in goat's blood, and give it to their dad. They don't say what happened, but they deceived him nonetheless. They didn't lie directly to him. They didn't say, oh, hey, look, Joseph must have got eaten by an animal. They let Jacob draw his own conclusions, and he drew exactly the conclusions they intended for him to. But it's interesting that the third time that this robe comes back into play, it's deception, and it's deception with goat's blood. The reason why I point out this is interesting is because Jacob deceived his own father in the same way. He put on goat's skin, and he went in and he deceived his, his father to steal his brother Esau's blessing. Jacob's sin has come full circle now. As we talked about last week, that sin often does. It has nothing to do with karma family, but it has everything to do with God desiring for us to understand our sin. And so as Jacob deceived his father with goat's skin, goat's fur, now Jacob himself is deceived by his sons by goat's blood. And he says, oh, my favorite son is dead. I'm never going to get over this. Understand, in this time, it was typical for a father to mourn for a dead child for one week. One week. And then they would compose themselves. They would move on with their lives. Because it's not healthy for a person to mourn their whole life. It's not healthy. It's not natural. It's not normal. It's not biblical. We talked about this when Sarah died, right? They would mourn for one week for a, for a dead child. It was extraordinary, as we're going to read, that when Moses died, the children of Israel wept for him for a whole month. That was extraordinary. That was a little bit even possibly ridiculous. But Jacob says, I'm never going to get over this. I'm going to die mourning for my son. And every day until my death, all I'm going to do is mourn for my dead son. All the brothers and even Joseph's sisters came to try and comfort their dad and he wouldn't have any of it. No, 
No, I'm going to mourn for him for the rest of my life until my dying breath. The last thing we read in chapter 29 is verse 36. That meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, the, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. If you know the story, the narrative of Joseph, you know what happens next. Joseph not only serves in Potiphar's house, an, op- an officer of the guard, But Joseph later is put in a key place to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, which Darren spoke about earlier. Well, he spoke about Daniel, but you know what I'm talking about. To interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he's put in a very key position to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And as a result, he's made second in command over all of Egypt. Over all of Egypt, because he is able to reveal to Pharaoh by God's providence that Egypt is going to have a famine and we need to start preparing now. So Pharaoh says, well, since you're so wise, you take care of it. In fact, I'm going to make you regent over all Egypt, second only to me. Do whatever you want. Here's palaces, here's servants, here's wealth, here's riches. And Joseph does. He does prepare for the famine. There were seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so for the seven years of plenty, Joseph stores up in Egypt grain to last them through the seven years of famine. Well, who's hit by the famine? None other than Jacob and his sons. So Jacob sends his sons to Egypt where Joseph was placed to save his family. And ultimately, to save Israel. If Joseph, understand family, we're going to go back now a little bit. Understand. If Joseph was not favored by his father. If Joseph hadn't sinned and been a tattletale. If Joseph had not dreamed the dreams that he had. There'd be no reason to murder him or to want to murder him. There'd be no reason to sell him into slavery. There'd be no reason for Joseph to go to Egypt. There'd be no reason for him to meet and talk to Pharaoh and interpret his dreams. And not only would Egypt have died in famine, but there's a decent chance that they would have gotten through because they were a large people. And so they had plenty of crops. But most assuredly, Israel would have died. This family, Jacob and his sons and his daughters, would have died. They would have perished in the famine. A while back I said that where was God in this whole thing when all these terrible things were happening around Joseph and his life? Where was God? He was throwing fuel on the fire. He was making it worse. He was making sure his brothers hated him. Why? Well, we never would have known it, but had he not done that, had he not made sure that his brothers hated him, Joseph would have never been able to save them later. God did what he knew was best to take Joseph out of his place, put him in Egypt. He knew all that had to happen for it to, for it to work out the way it did, and he 
put Joseph in place to save Israel. God knows what he's doing, family. And he's not just the God of the miraculous, but the God of the ordinary. I know that there's things that are going on in our lives that suck. Life is tough. And there will be tragedy in your life. There will be bad things that happen to you. People will sin against you, and even your sin will come back to haunt you. Aside from all of these outward circumstances, there will also be trials and tribulations allowed by God, as it talks about in James 1. There will even be inexplicable tragedy that befalls you. But understand, family, God is orchestrating it all for a purpose, for a perfect purpose, and for a promise. What's that promise? It's that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. To prosper you and not to harm you. To give you a future and a hope. That he works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the promise. If you're hurting now or have been. Or maybe you haven't been lately. You will be. If you lose your job. If a loved one dies. If there's conflict in the home, if there's trouble at school and, or with drama with friends, no matter what's going on in your life, listen. God not only knows what's happening, but he's working it to happen that way. This is why Joseph didn't open his mouth. This is why he never through a pity party for himself. Understand, Joseph had gone through the worst of circumstances. His own flesh and blood tried to kill him, then sold him into slavery. He became a slave, then was thrown into prison. All of these terrible things are happening to Joseph. He was a slave. It doesn't get much worse than that. But even though he was a slave and was in a pitiful situation... And definitely was a victim. Joseph didn't allow himself to become a slave of victimization and of self-pity. Let me say that again. Joseph was a slave. And he was in a pitiful situation. Okay? He was in a very pitiful situation. And he absolutely was a victim. But Joseph did not allow himself to become a slave of self-pity and victimization. Whatever is going on in your life, don't allow yourself to become a slave of self-pity or victimization. There's no need for it. There's no need for it. Why? Because Joseph understood that God was huge. Joseph understood how big God was. And not only did he, did he understand how big God was, 
but he believed God's promise to him. He believed those dreams that he dreamt. He believed God's promise. And so he didn't have to be bummed. He didn't have to throw a pity party. Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm sure he was bummed. How could you not be? But he didn't live in that. Like I said, he didn't become a slave to self-pity, ruled by poor me attitude. And by a everyone's against me victimization attitude. Instead, he believed God. And he understood something so important and so crucial In fact, in my opinion, one of the most important yet most overlooked principles in the entire Bible when it comes to our lives as Christians. And it's what he says to his brothers, as we'll read in Genesis chapter 50. They come to him so sorry for what they've done. And he says, don't worry about it. You didn't put me here. God put me here. What you meant for evil, God intended for good. You didn't put me here, God did. And what you intended, or what you meant for evil, what you intended for evil, yeah, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Not only your sin, Joseph's sin, Not only the people around you sin, Jacob's sin, and his brother's sin for hatred. But all of these things and all of the tragedies that befall you, that seem evil to you, God intends them to happen. He means for them to happen. He purposes, lays out, orchestrates for them to happen. Why? For good. For good. It's like a well put together movie. We're almost done, but listen up. This is something I, I don't want us to miss. Stay sharp. How many of you have seen the movie Inception? Yeah, killer movie. If you haven't, it's an amazing movie. Amazing, amazing movie. I saw it twice. Um, but Inception is one of those movies that all throughout the movie, you don't know what's happening. You don't understand what's going on. It's just like, oh man, well, why is that happening? And what does that mean? And what's this little, well, why is there a top? What's so important about this stupid top? He keeps playing with the top. I don't get the top. You know, and then it's like, well, well, gosh, I mean, how many dreams deep are they? Are there four dreams? Wait, that was a dream? How could that be a dream? I thought that was real. And, and you get so confused, and throughout the whole movie, you don't understand what all of these little things lead up to. But then in the very last scene, right before it fades to black, it all comes together. You understand what every single piece means. You understand how it all put together, and it's one of those movies that you just go, oh, Wow. Snap, I didn't see that coming at all. Don't you just love those movies? Those are my favorite kind of movies. I get, I'm one of those people, I, it's my dad's fault. It's cursed genes. I I don't get fooled by movies. Hardly ever. It's like I'm watching a movie in the first 10 minutes. I have the whole thing figured out. 
And it's annoying because I, don't, I want to enjoy it and I, I have it figured out. And it annoys other people. Don't go see a movie with me because I'll tell you what happens in the first 10 minutes. You're like, have you seen this before? And I haven't. It's just a curse that I have. So I love those movies that are so well put together and so well written that you don't get it until the very end. Because I, that's a rare joy for me. And so when I get that, they're my favorite movies. This is exactly how God works. God is the best screenwriter ever. And your movie, your life, all of these things that are happening to you, not only tragedies that befall you, not only people sin against you, but even family, listen, even your own sin. Those things that you look at in your life and regret, even your own sin, God is intending to happen in your life. So at the the very end, these random series of events that don't make any sense to you will all come together. It'll all come together in the perfect plot twist. And what's the resolution? Romans 8.28, all things work together for the good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. And that you might be full and complete looking just like him. Why are all these bad, tragic, terrible things happening in your life? Why is sin continuing to rear its ugly head? God is intending these these things to happen. Ultimately, to bring your life together in the perfect plot twist that you'd look like Jesus. Family, take heart. Life may be hard, but it's not random. It's not random. And if Joseph could understand this and have peace through the worst imaginable circumstances, so can we. So can we. So that when we stand here and and you get to say that it's a Tuesday for you, God meant that to happen for good. Family, I'm not standing up here preaching anything to you that I don't believe, and I'm not standing up here saying something that sounds good or is inspirational or is my own opinions or is just something happy and encouraging or something damning and and, uh, oppressive. This is God's word. This is God's word. If you remember nothing else, remember this. And never let this, never let this leave your mind. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Joseph. God, being such a a light to to me and to all of us, that you're in control. 
that you know exactly what you're doing. And that you're planning and purposing it all to happen. To fulfill your promise to us. That we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God, never let us forget that you are in control, that you know what you're doing, and that all the things that happen in this life are not random series of events, but they're perfect plot points that you've placed that you've written into this epic meta-narrative of life so that we might know you, that we might look like your son Jesus, and most importantly, that you might be glorified. Father, as we go our way now, let us remember that. Let us remember how big you truly are, how in control you are, that you are the king and you still sit on the throne and that you love us, that you care for us and you know exactly what's happening in our lives and we can trust you. You're so good, king. You do all things well. And so from my life and from all of our lives, you get it all. Everything is yours. Everything that we are, Father, and even everything that we're not, you get all the glory, all the power, all the honor, and all the praise forever and ever. Amen. The Lord richly bless you and keep you. May God cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace.